Hello and welcome to Software Huddle. I'm Sean Falker and I'm here with my co-host Alex Debris for a special end of the year clips episode of Software Huddle. Alex and I are going to take some time today to highlight some of our favorite clips from our interviews since we launched the show back in August. But before we get into all that, Alex, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing well, um, you know, safely back from reInvent and all the, the fun that we had there and, and different things like that. And now for me, it always seems like reInvent's the end of the year for me. And I just sort of coast into the holidays and, and gear off with the, the new year. So, yeah, excited to, you know, look back at our first year of Software Huddle, have our last episode of the year here and, and see what we've, been, what we've been doing here. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, we both survived reInvent. And then I flew immediately to Paris for the week. Uh, survived that, and then I basically died a little bit after that. I was fighting a cold and uh, I felt kind of terrible, but I'm now in full recovery and feeling good, ready to to celebrate uh, the holidays. Yeah, yeah, you're you're way more adventurous than me. I need some time. I need more recovery time than that. But you're just always jetting all over the place, so that's great. Yeah, it gives me energy until it doesn't. Essentially, I like fall off a cliff at some point. But also, one cool thing about reinvent. Uh, it probably maybe not everybody knows this, but we'd never met in person until we actually met up at reInvent. So that was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Good, good to put a real live face face to the name, not just a virtual one. So yeah, good to, good to catch up and meet for the first time. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm not just a deep fake video. And we also met um, one of our recent guests, Merit Bear there as well, had shared some hot pot with her. So that was really fun to be able to do that too. Yep, yep. And you were you were mean with AWS Royalty, Jeff Barr, he called you out on, on LinkedIn and everything. So yeah, you had a big reInvent. Yeah, that was uh, that's the peak. It's all downhill now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome uh, to to be able to uh, spend like half an hour or so talking to Jeff, and then actually have him remember enough of the, that conversation to uh, post about it on LinkedIn. So that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a good time reinvent. Like, just so many people there. Like, you know, you and I have never met, but just a lot of people I talk to all year, and then finally we're all in one place. And I'm just gonna hang out with people and and see what they're up to. So great time. Yeah. Yeah, tons of fun. All right, Alex, you want to set up the, the first clip here? Yeah, sure. So my first one, this was my first episode I recorded for Software Huddle. This was with Sam Lambert from Planet Scale. Um, super interesting guy. You know, Planet Scale is doing some some cool stuff. And I thought it was a fun episode just talking about technical stuff with MySQL and Planet Scale and just databases generally, all that stuff. Um, this clip was different and, and valuable in a different way, right? Where he's talking, we're talking about role changes as he sort of progresses up through a company. He was he was early at GitHub and sort of worked his way up the ranks there and now is the the CEO at PlanetScale. And just like what does that look like in terms of, you know, staying technically sharp and what changes about your role? Also, I just think PlanetScale does a really good job on execution and doing everything really well. And how do you maintain that sort of high bar? So it was fun just talking about his role and and maintaining that that sort of standard of excellence at PlanetScale. Awesome. Well, let's roll the clip. When you talk about experts leading experts, like as you've continued to climb up the executive ladder, like VP Eng and then chief product chief, chief executive, like how do you still stay sharp and technical? Do you do some hands-on stuff, even if it's in your spare time? Do you just keep up with design docs, like, or do you just know know your know your spots more and where you, you aren't leading the experts? You're an expert leading expert. Yeah, I, I would would hate to horrify our engineering team by submitting any of my work to. <laughs> I'm not, I'd, right, so here's the model ways. So I know I try and acknowledge the things I don't know, right? Like, can I, I do not spend time in the weeds technically as much as I, I, I could do at plant scale because I have other things I should do, right? There's, we're here to build a business. There's unique yeah. things about my role that I should do. 
but I gain a technical appreciation. I love technology. I still code it, uh, in my free time for little personal projects or build silly things or websites or just automation for my home is one thing I mess around with. So I still write um, code at least once a week. Um, but there's a, you got to be careful. There's another profile of like, I was technical once style leaders that were like, ah, I was an engineer once. And they try and like write code for their team. And it just becomes like this embarrassing. I try not to do that. I also just hold technical conversations. Um, like our VP of engineering is outstanding where he communicates um, the changes we're making. And you can just track along. Once you know this stuff once, you kind of track along with the changes. You understand the trade-offs. Um, and the other thing is, the role I have to play um, with the organization is understanding the, the very technical things we have to do for a database. And then we have to translate that into design and visual design and marketing and brand. And because I'm always in the kind of middle of that, I very much appreciate brand. I very much appreciate our marketing and, and, and beautiful design. And again, that only comes from it being cared about at the top because otherwise it's a very technical companies, you can tell, uh, their, their designers are getting steamrolled. Um, and and so you have to hold all of those things in balance and appreciate all of those things, which means you think about them a lot and you learn about them a lot. Is that something you've always had had natural? Like, I I agree, like, PlanetScale has really good design for an infrastructure company. And if you told me, like, hey, former MySQL DBA is, like, their CEO, I, I, I just, like, wouldn't expect great design or... or like no offense <laughs> to you, you no, know, but like you, you really have a great design aesthetic and like how much is that, is that something you've had a talent for that you've picked up over the years or you just like are able to find great designers that can that can help pull that because i've worked at some technical companies that did not have uh that sort of that sort of feeling i've always appreciated design and style ever since i was young uh i did best at art at school I've love art. My house is absolutely teeming with art. I've always loved and appreciate aesthetics and style and fashion. Um, even though nowadays all I wear is black t-shirts and a database hat. But I do. Um, I've always had a strong. Even that is great fashion, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I've always just always appreciated. Like I, you know, I love bags. For example, I've got a ridiculous collection of bags and shoes and all of these various things. I just love aesthetic things. Things that, you know. There's things like the iPhone, right, which is just like a technical masterpiece presented so simply. I've got this obsession with power and simplicity and how hard it is to present incredibly powerful things simply. And it's always just fascinated me. And then GitHub fully solidified this for me, that it is possible to build a thriving and exciting company while caring about aesthetic. The early engineers and designers of GitHub had the most perfect taste. I don't think they could quantify what that magic was because you don't have to when you have taste. Um, and and seeing the lengths that we went to to not ship things that were ugly or shoddy was truly inspiring and we carried that over to Planet Scale. But it's something we all really care about. And it's also, again, why you have to be careful with the talent bar because you can't democratize taste. You just, that's why arguing with people on the internet is just pointless because they just don't see it the way you see it, right? You just have to hold it in front of their faces like, is this ugly or bad? Yes or no, right? And 
and and some people want to hide their product in. I mean, I'm just very proud of PlanScale. We we can take you to petabytes of data, and you'll never have to write YAML. I mean, that's some like the things people put their users through is abysmal, um, and we just try really hard not yeah. to do that. And over the long run, that that really pays off, and it's put MySQL in places that it historically never would have been. You know, I see. Well, first of all, I see our website. Like very often, you see these like top ten best websites or technical websites. It's like linear us, Notion, Stripe, GitHub. And you're just like immensely proud, and 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 we have a, a technology that is most relevant. Was started off as being most relevant to giant or enterprises with giant scaling problems, and the fact now we've got hundreds of thousands of developers using the product for the most ripping hot cool projects is because we delivered incredible developer experience and taste and style. And that, that's all changed. It's, it's how things are done nowadays. All right. So yeah, I just, uh, you know, I love that interview. I love that clip. I think it's interesting just seeing Sam sort of balance the, the problem that you see from a lot of people where maybe it's like the first engineer or, or someone that is very technical, but now goes into that C-suite and they want to like keep their fingers in the pie too much and, and sort of like end up blocking things or uh, just like creating a mess and things. And I think just the way he's realizing like, hey, I still need to stay technical, partly because he loves it, but also because, uh, you know, it, it helps them translate it to uh, brand and marketing and talking to customers and all that sort of thing. I think that trade off is is pretty interesting and just like a difficult one that I haven't seen other companies manage uh, super well in the, in the past. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a hard transition for lots of people who are really technical to move into those leadership positions. Like even people who don't necessarily reach the height of, you know, CEO, but when you're moving even from like an IC to a manager role or from, you know, an IC engineer to like a product management role or something like that. I, like, I think a lot of the classic missteps is just like, oh, I need to be in there sort of like bit twiddling every single thing that's coming out, but you're never going to be able to scale beyond a certain level. Uh, it's, it's almost, it's like the engineer's form of micromanagement is like when you're, you know, you're still like, I need to be in there, like hands on keyboard, like coding when, you know, you're, you're trying to like actually make a, a team successful and scale an organization and stuff. And you're just never, ever going to be able to do that if, if you're kind of getting in your own way of, of your team being successful. Yep. It makes me think too, of just like my future. Cause I'm like, you know, in 30 years, am I still going to be programming? I don't know. But then it's also just like, when I do get a programming thing and I get to just like sit down and work on that uninterrupted for four, eight hours at a time. You just like get that that love of it and how fun it is to like solve that problem. It's like hard to give that up, but also you realize you want to be doing different, higher level or just different things, you know. And, and balancing that is is tricky for myself. And I can imagine, you know, as you're you're moving up the leadership at a company, it's it's uh, difficult in the same way. Yeah, I've certainly struggled with that in in parts of my career as well, especially like when I you know stepped into basically being the CTO and a founder right out of like graduate school. So. Um, you know, and, and most of my like sort of pure IC engineering work was done in conjunction with being in school. So I'd only, you know, worked for, you know, eight month stints or year stint part time and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was a, a tough transition, uh, to suddenly be like managing people. And to be honest, like I had no idea what I was doing. So, and, uh, you know, you learn a lot of harsh lessons along the way there. I love the line that he said about how you can't democratize taste. Um, and I, I really love a lot of his takes, like some of the things I remember from his interview was around like, you know, if you want to build essentially like exceptional companies, you need exceptional people. And, and I, I always keep that in mind also with, um, you know, the teams I built or especially working in the startup space. Like if you want to build a, 
you know, Snowflake, Salesforce, you know, side, you know, these types of companies, these like marquee companies, once in a generation companies, like the bar is really high. And you have to kind of understand that as a leader and also understand that as someone like entering the organization and make sure that you're keeping that bar like that. I think that's like one of the really hard parts about a startup. It's not necessarily just like even all the stuff around like trying to pri- find product market fit and figure out your go to market and stuff. It's like maintaining that culture and that high level of excellence and setting that expectation and sometimes having to make like brutal decisions or like at least, you know, feels like brutal decisions of, you know, letting people go when it isn't a fit or they're not able to meet the mark. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's just like a huge difference from when you're working with people that you trust and and just like, you know, can count on to do really good work all the time versus people that feel like they're just sort of punching the clock. And it's just like, it changes how you approach your work and it just, it can really affect the whole team. And yeah, I love how Planet Scale, I think they execute on e- like in every area at a very high level. And you can just tell that like that, that culture of qual- quality, very high h- hiring bar, but just like very high expectations for themselves and like what it is. And I love to, to see that from Sam. Yeah. And it's true. Like, I think if you want to create a premium brand, you kind of have to have that, like, you know, feeling across the entire company so that people aren't just, you know, putting out crap essentially. Uh, and, and, and you need, you need to gatekeep it, but you also need people to kind of understand and be you know, responsible for what their, their work is. All right. Well, next up we have Bob Muglia, you know, veteran of Microsoft to 20 plus years, ex-CEO of Snowflake. And he was basically there from like pre-revenue to nearly going public. I, I absolutely love this interview. Like this is probably the highlight of my you know, podcasting career. And in terms of the the clip, what we talk about there was I, I kind of set this thing up where I I talked I wanted to get Bob's take on difficult leaders and you know his experience working with some, you know people like Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, sort of in the height of Microsoft. Uh, you know I think a lot, especially Bill Gates has kind of become more of like a lovable grandpa as he's gotten older and stuff like that. But, you know, if you listen to some of the early Microsoft stories, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty harsh. And so I wanted to kind of figure out like how big of an asshole do you really need to be in order to run like a big successful company? So that's really the setup here. Yeah. So like, if you go back to, you know, some of the early days at Microsoft and of course, like other companies, like leaders like I think Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, Jeff Bezos, the list goes on and on. Like they're somewhat notoriously known for being somewhat difficult to deal with, at least back then. Like they're all difficult. Yeah. So I guess like was that a is that like because of has things changed, I guess is what the bottom line of like or do you need to be that way in order to create these types of companies? It's a great question, right? I, I don't you know I think that you know the first of all the the ones that that are are successful continue to you know they continue to have multiple sides to them and you know from from what I can see most of these people are very very driven and they have you know their idiosyncrasies as well um, certainly contemporaries like Elon Musk are no less difficult than 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 those guys than those guys were um, uh, so I but I don't know I mean I think the characteristic is very driven people that have objectives and and in some senses they're you know they they're going to focus on achieving those objectives and and uh and that sometimes requires people to to make difficult decisions and sometimes be difficult um sometimes that sometimes it helps because i really do think it helps people do it to push them to achieve more on the other hand i wouldn't say it's the way i would do things i mean i i say all this but but that's not how i ran things to be to be straight i don't think people would say i did that although i could be difficult in reviews too if people are not prepared 
Um, uh, generally speaking, I, I, I don't think I was quite as difficult as, as some of those folks are, but then on the other hand, I'm not as successful as those folks were either. So, so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Does, how big of an asshole do you have to be in order to be super, super successful? It's a great question. Probably a little bit more than I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you probably need, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, you need at the very least to have a very high bar in terms of like the expectations that you're putting on people so that people are like forced to meet that bar. And sometimes if they're not meeting that bar, you need to be, give them candid feedback. And a lot of times you don't have time to necessarily do that in the nicest way. So I think there's probably a balance there. You don't necessarily, I, I think it would be unfair to the success of these people to just say the correlation is be a giant asshole and then you'll be, you'll turn into Bill Gates, right? It's a oversimplify. For sure. <laughs> yeah. It takes more than that. However, the attribute does seem to come with the, come with the, the, those folks in my experience, in my experience. You know, the other thing I'll tell you is that, is that uh, really brilliant technical people, while they don't tend to have the same assholishness as, as Steve and Bill and some of these others did, they, you know, they are difficult too, in my experience. It's very rare working with these brilliant technical people that they're that they have, you know, they're they're just the same as everybody else. Let's put it that way. Uh, people who have these these brilliant capabilities, you know, have their attributes that that comes through in their personality. And and I've learned, you know, over time to really work with a wide variety of different people. And and one of the most important things I'll just say is is just trying to maintain relationships with people through all of that. Uh, that's to me something that's very important. Uh, that no matter what the issue is at hand. Um, the relationship with the person is actually pro almost certainly more important. All right, we're back. Well, how awesome was that? <laughs> it was great. Like, I, I still can't believe you got Bob on and, and just what a fun interview. And yeah, this is a great clip to, to choose from. Yeah, he dropped so much gold in that interview. Yeah, I hope at some point, you know, we're able to get him back. It's a little jarring watching the clip because I did that while I was at reInvent, so I have like a curtain background and stuff like that. Uh, it wasn't. And, the, it's, and the, it's funny to see his background. He's got like a, a fossil behind him, and it's just like, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty so, sure yeah. that's a real fossil. I'm just uh, you know, guessing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. I also I, I realized uh, he has his book, uh, The Datapreneurs, which I highly recommend to people. It is a really good read uh, up in the background there as well. So some cool stuff uh, being able to. It's it's harder when you're talking to the person in the moment to necessarily capture all the information about their background. Uh, so it's good to revisit these just to, to, to for my own information. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was a, a a great clip and like it's interesting. We talk about um, you know assholes and things like that. I like, but even just looking back in life, um, you know, the teachers, the coaches I had, not necessarily like an asshole, but at least like very high standards, which is something that he was talking about too. Like, you know, you look back fondly on those times. I think that's like the most growth you have is when you have those people sort of pushing you towards doing better and, and having a vision and, and really aiming towards it and not just settling for good enough. So like, I, I don't know, I, I still feel inspired from those, those things um, when I see those. Yeah. I find myself as well. I, I respond, I think, to uh, that kind of like leadership. Um, I, I, it's not for everybody, but, you know, also thinking back, like, you know, one of the best, or like one of the best like hockey teams I played on when I was a kid was we had this guy that was the coach. He was like an ex-military guy and he like ran, I mean, we were like 10 years old, but he ran a tight ship, you know, like you're in bed at a certain time, but we, we, also, you know, you couldn't sort of argue with the results of what we saw. And then the next year we basically had the same team, but we had a completely different coach and coaching style. And it was a lot more like 
I, you know, the guy wanted to be, you know, every, every kid's like best friend. And, you know, we were kind of uh, terrible. So like, you know, you can, so uh, I don't know the, the results speak for itself in, in some ways. It is interesting at those formative stages, like how big, how big of a difference you can make. And it's funny, you come out of that and like, you feel close with your teammates. I don't know. Sometimes you don't feel the greatest towards the coach itself at that point, but like, you know, eventually you probably look back fondly depending on, I guess, exactly the, you know, whether, whether he was an asshole or just strict, you know, but like, yeah, I just think that's like a great way to grow is to have someone that can lead you and, and really push you beyond what you think you're capable of. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a balance between, but essentially going back to the Sam Lambert um, uh, conversation as well. It's like, you need to set this high bar and you need to make sure people are you know hitting that bar and they understand when they're not. And there, but there's different sort of levels of how you can communicate that thing. So I, I think for myself, I, I definitely have like a little bit softer touch. I'm probably more in the Bob Muglia camp than the Elon Musk camp. But I'm uh, also, you know, not nearly as successful <laughs> as any of yeah. those people. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, and I feel the same thing with my kids too. I'm like, too, too, am, I, am I too easy on them? Am I like not getting enough out of them or whatever? But it's just like, it's, it, you know, it's not my personality. It's, it's, it sounds like not quite yours either, but it is interesting. Like what you can get out of, get out of people if you push them. Yeah. You need to start setting a higher standard in your ch children's performance. Reviews <laughs> exactly. Right. Come on, play that piano, practice that violin, whatever it is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So next is a clip from my conversation with Evis Genova. He's the CEO and co-founder of Nucleus. Evis started Nucleus and got into Y Combinator all while working as a product lead for the company I work for, Skyflow, which is a Series B startup. So, um, you know, it was a lot about, you know, his journey through the first year of being a CEO uh, that I thought was, a, a, you know, really interesting for anybody who is thinking about like starting a company. And in the clip, you'll hear Evis's response to me asking about sort of trying to balance doing a full-time job while also building and launching a company, which is kind of a crazy thing to try to go through. You started, you know, um, the early ideas and the early prototyping while also essentially, you know, working as a full-time product manager. And it's not like you had some, you know, low effort, low responsibility job. You were a product lead at a, you know, fast growing startup. So how did you kind of like balance starting a company with, you know, uh, uh, leading a full-time job? And Yeah. I mean, I think, um, part of it was just, just, the hours, honestly, I don't know if there's a there's a way around it. Um, yeah, it was working at Skyflow with uh, with you and the team for the majority of the day, and I think what was interesting was like we had you know a big team offshore, um, and and so like the hours were always interesting because we had like the morning hours, then you had the nighttime hours to sync with you know our, our other team. Um, so trying to find you know maybe an hour or two during the week to talk about it um, with Nick and anybody else I wanted to have a call with. Um, but really is spending the weekends and just kind of dedicating myself and um, and saying like, hey, this is something I'm really interested in. I want to see it through and I want to see where it takes me. So I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, the Saturdays and the Sundays when I could be doing anything else. Um, and so that was tough. You know, I did that for, for probably about seven months where pretty much every single weekend it was um, talking to Nick, talking to potential customers, to doing just discovery calls, um, doing some coding, doing some building. Um, and then during the week, you know, going back and focusing on the day job. Um, and there's, you know, lessons learned there. Like there's a part of me that says like, you know, was that the right, the right thing to do? But it depends, right? It depends on your own personal situation. And uh, for me, I just wasn't in a position where I could say, hey, I'm going to take six to 12 months off and just kind of like play around with some ideas and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a tough choice for, for 
anybody, especially living in the Bay Area. It's not like uh, right. the cost of living is is, uh, is is low or anything like that. You need to you need to be able to eat. But so you mentioned that you were you ended up uh, going through Y Combinator. So why was that something that you were interested in doing? And what was the backup plan if you weren't accepted into YC? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think YC has obviously a brand, um, not just in sort of like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the Bay Area, but also just generally in the world. And so I think for us, we had said, okay, well, one, it's a really good program and we're going to get, you know, hopefully really great guidance, which we did. Um, but also there's, you know, there's something to be said about sort of like the signaling of going through YC and um, being able to talk to investors, talk to potential customers. And so it felt like it was the right mix of we're still early enough just in our founder journey and our kind of like product and kind of problem journey that YC can help shape that. Um, we're going to get a great sort of founder community, both with the people that are going through the batch with, but also previous YC founders. Um, and then also it opens doors to be able to talk to investors and um, and sort of have other sort of like connections and channels to go through. So uh, it made sense to go through it. Um, you know, in terms of the backup plan, I think the backup plan was just continue working on it and just see where it takes us. Um, you know, if we didn't get in that batch, you know, maybe try again and apply. Um, otherwise, just kind of like keep hammering on it until it gets to a point where we say, hey, this is working. So great, we're going to go full time and try to get you know, funding from investors. Or this isn't working, let's go try something else. Um, so yeah, it was definitely you know, plan A, but um, if it didn't work, it's not like we we're going to say, hey, we're, we're just done with this. Like we were only in it to do YC. All right, and we're back again. Yeah, I think... And this is uh, like a really smart guy. Uh, I, I think actually, um, you know, I follow him on Twitter uh, and I think he, has, he doesn't have much of a following, but he's definitely a good, he's a good follow. He's got lots of hot takes. So I encourage anybody out there to, to look him up. I, I like those like hid, hidden gem Twitter people where you're just like, oh yeah, you're still under the radar enough that you can like say some good stuff without getting it all uh, fire and turn into a flame war. So that's great. Yeah, he only has like 300 followers or something like that. But like, you know, he's, he's, putting, he's putting some good stuff out there. I really enjoy it. Uh, but one of the interesting things about, um, you know, post that interview is they've actually pivoted Nucleus significantly. Um, and uh, in some ways, it's not even really a pivot. It's more like, they, you know, travel, essentially. Like they, the company's like completely different in a lot of ways. They're now a company called NeoSync, or that's what the product is. And they're doing open source test data ops. So we'll need to have him back at some point to kind of talk a little bit about that. What did you think about his his notes about just like sacrificing with with hours and, and times like that? I guess like how does that match up with you know either your startup or when you were at Google or now at Skyflow? Like you know I, I think there's that work life balance t um, topic that comes up a lot. What do you how do you sort of come down on that? Yeah, I think so. I started my company while I was doing like my postdoc, so I I did basically have like a full time job as an academic, and I was you know traveling to Geneva and Switzerland like on a regular basis because I was working with the the WHO at the time, and it was a tricky balance. Like it was a lot of like you know doing off hours or finding time even during the working day when I could kind of work away on on the product stuff. I was lucky that I had um, my co founder was pretty much like full time on the business at that time. So he could do a lot of sort of the, the sales and the customer conversations and some of the fundraising stuff without my involvement. And most of the time I was spending kind of just like hands on keyboard, like building the initial version of the product. So that was really, really helpful. But I think it, it is tricky, but the I think like, it's kind of like a, a choice that you have to make, especially when you're building a company. There is, you know, startups, uh, I think like Skyflow does a pretty good job of trying to emphasize work-life balance, but at the same time, like if you're in a leadership role and a startup, like there's there's inevitably going to be times where 
you have to be willing to say like, okay, well, I have to put time into this or I need to find time for this. That's outside of regular work. It's really difficult, I think, to be like super rigid, like, hey, I work these hours and then I'm kind of like offline after that. Uh, at least for me, it doesn't work. Like, it's just not realistic. But I've kind of always been that way with pretty much any job. Like, I, I, I kind of like really dive into stuff. And it's, you know, maybe it's more about my personality than necessarily in the company. I just have a hard time kind of letting things go. Like, I don't really separate sort of work and life. And to me, it's kind of all uh, similar things. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of my work. So it's not something like that I feel like, it's a, a you know a, a, like a drain from me or anything like that. I look forward to doing a lot of this stuff, so I think that also uh, impacts sort of my approach to it. Yeah, I agree. Like I have the same sort of issue where like I always pour a lot into my work. I think it's nice because I mean, I think at least like in, in sort of programming and things like that, like that's an enjoyable thing in and of itself. I like I find it like I don't need a lot of other hobbies. I think it's fun to just like solve a problem and and make something real and do something like that. So I think that's good. I also just think, you know, you're like between like when you're like age 20 to 35, you're like combination of stamina and just like ability to learn and all and and all that stuff works really well. Or if you put in some good time there, I think it really pays off later on. And, and you know, there are a lot of other things to consider as well. Like, but I just think of you know, my first couple programming jobs and things like that and, and putting in a lot of extra time and, and what that sort of meant a little bit with like my wife, my wife is understanding around some of that stuff. But now I think it's paid off in a lot of ways where we have a much more flexible life and, and things like that. So, you know, it's trade-offs and you have to think about, about that stuff. But I, I do think it can be beneficial, especially early in your career to really like put in that time, do the learning and, and, and uh, you know, make those advances at that point. Yeah. There's probably when you're young, there's, generally not never going to be a time in your life where you have sort of more freedom in your schedule and your responsibilities to kind of like dive deep into things. Like I remember my first sort of engineering co-op job that I had in college and like, I would work like every weekend because it wasn't because anyone was forcing me to. I just like loved it so much. Like I loved the opportunity to actually be doing something that was like working on a product. Um, and, and it wasn't just like a school assignment or something like that. So I think for me, it was just such a passion that I, I just loved doing it. So I was like, I would do it. I would have done it for free, uh, you know, yep. and then I was happy to totally. make, you know, make a little bit of money doing it as well. Yep. Yeah. Don't tell your boss that, but it, it, it's so <laughs> true. Like it's, it's so much fun that you just like want to work on it anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's go, uh, let's go to the next clip here. All right. So next up we have Craig Dennis, longtime Twilio developer educator who has since actually left uh, Twilio. So similar to Evis who has, he's had a big transition in terms of his own company uh, Craig is, you know, off to whatever he is doing next. I'm not actually sure. I think he's taking a little break before he figures it out. But in the clip, I asked Craig about what is the right or wrong way to get started with coding? You know, essentially, should people have to suffer in the deep end of first or should they, you know, essentially have a gentler introduction by cutting out, you know, things like the compiler and keeping things at a bit more of a high level to get started? So let's go to the clip. What is your thoughts on, so I feel like in the world of, um, you know, developers kind of uh, in the early stages learning how to code, there's often sort of two camps. There's this camp that, uh, you know, I've heard uh, Joel Spolsky talk about this where it's essentially, you know, everyone should start out coding in, you know, C or C++. They need to feel the pain of not understanding, you know, a memory error and having to dig into the details to really understand the machine at its lowest level before, you know, graduating to sort of higher level, easier languages. 
uh, and and, uh, and that's really like key. Basically, you need to weed out the weak early on. And then there's another camp that's like, hey, like, let's be a little bit, you know, more inclusive. Let's start out. We'll, you know, learn, I don't know, Python or JavaScript, something that's like a little, you don't have to worry about compiler, a little bit easier to, to maybe get up and running doing that first program. And then, you know, when you're successful there, maybe you'll graduate into more complex tasks and so forth. What What is your thoughts in terms of how someone, uh, you know, navigates that world? Is, is there a right or wrong in this? I would say if you can struggle through this, the C compiler, yeah, you're probably uh, set up to do this. But if you go and you hit the C compiler, you're like, this is all the programming is and this is what it's about. And I'm not going to do this because this isn't for me. You're wrong, right? That's you're, that's not what it's about, right? Like anymore, right? Like I don't I don't feel like that. That is there are there are parts of this that you you could like, and you're cheating yourself. I think by making it in that by not using the abstractions that exist. I even think that no code is a great way to come in and start playing around with coding, ironically, right? Like like understanding the structure and how how things flow and what what that's all about is an abstraction. That no code has given us, and you know, I think that there's like all this, there's a bunch of buzz around that about that taking over our jobs and things like that. <laughs> but I think really what what happened is like there's abstractions, and and if you can use the abstraction and it doesn't, you don't need to dive deeper. I think you're going to be okay, and like you should dive deeper when you need to, right? If you run into something that you're not understanding, that's where you go and dive into it. But like, really, if you're building. A, if you're if you're working on a, a smaller site, if you're, if you're just getting started and you're working on a on a website, you're working on just like a standard website that that has displaying some dynamic data. Do you need to know how a compiler works? Do you need to know what a compiler is? Like I, I don't know. There's a this there's this level of like that's that's where I'm at. And like I I do see that as um you know I think that there's that's also the camp of like you need a degree to to do this that 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 camp exists. I don't know I don't, anymore. I, I think that it's almost like you're waste. This is me talking. I'm not the views I express might not be part of my employers. <laughs> I, I think that you're almost at this point four years dialed into a curriculum. There's no way that that's up to date. There's not like that. That's just plain truth. There's there's no way that what you learn in there is still going to be up to date. And maybe. That's where you're, you're jamming the compiler stuff in because that still is is valid, right? And that, that you are going to learn that stuff there. Are you going to enjoy that? Or are you going to actually be building the stuff that makes you think that I want to do this forever? Or are you going to get near the end of this and be like, ah, I don't know if this is for me. Wait, what's an API? And you're like a junior in college and you don't know what an API is yet on, you know, using a computer science thing. That's interesting. It's an interesting problem, right? So I, I'm right. almost on the other side. I think like if, if, if I had to put myself in a camp, I would be like, do what's fun, right? Because this is a fun job if you can find it and you can find it. It will, it will be there. That fun exists. And, and whether that's the problem that you're solving or the way that you're solving it, you're going to find it and explore. I think, I think exploration is like huge in, in this, in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of it probably ultimately comes down to the individual. Like, you know, for myself speaking, you know, from my own experience, I had a, a classical sort of, you know, computer science education training and also very much was taught the the camp of like, you know, the world of hard knocks. Like you either suffer through this pain or, you know, go uh, change uh, careers and, and pick a different degree, essentially. Yeah. But 
I have, you know, worked at, you know, great places uh, and with fantastic engineers that have all kinds of different backgrounds that have right. come from boot camps, have come and started, you know, careers in completely different spaces and then took a boot camp, ended up at, you know, Google was a great engineer yeah. um, or people who, you know, started with a variety of different programming languages. So, so I mean, there's probably no right path. It really comes down to the, the individual and, you know, how much they get sucked into those, you know, I think wonderful world that that we've been sucked into of being a builder, creating and, you know, finding passion within it. Yeah. All right, Alex, what are your thoughts? What's your recommendations? Yeah, this was, this was the clip I was like most excited to talk to you about because we just had completely different paths, right? Like you mentioned, you're sort of classically trained computer science, Stanford, Google, all that sort of stuff. I like was not that way. I was not, I was a liberal arts major. I went to law school. I learned to code my last year of law school. I worked as a lawyer for a year and then, and then just like hopped over, but like totally self-taught. Uh, I don't know C or C++. I, I don't know anything about compilers or any of that stuff. I'm mostly like Python and JavaScript. I've done like a little go, but like mostly like, you know, just the uh, self-taught like web hacker type guy. So I don't know. I like, I think it's, it's interesting. Like I love that path. Like I always grew up like being on the internet and, and liking all the time. I sort of was interested in computer science going into college and I took one computer science class and just like totally hated it. I thought it was super boring, but then when I picked it up again, and I've been using the internet for 15 years, but now I'm like doing web development. And it's like that browser where I was like going to all these different places. Now I'm going to some place that I built or I can change something locally and immediately see that in the browser and then I can deploy it and send it to my friend and he can see it. Like that was just so powerful and amazing to me. And I, I just think like that route of getting people hooked can be really useful with the downside being I have some huge gaps in my knowledge around that stuff. And I've never felt the urge to go back to C or Sheepups plus, or even like picking up Rust or Zig or any of this stuff. So uh, it's difficult that way. Like we definitely, I don't know. I, I sort of wish, um, I guess, let me stop there. And like, what do, what do you think on, on this stuff? So I think that I really like Craig's kind of uh, advice of do what's fun. I think I think that that's probably the some of the most helpful thing, right? Like if you're actually engaged and you find it fun, then going back to what some of the things we were talking about earlier, where you feel like you know I would do this for free, or you're you're you you easily spend like a Saturday, you know, twelve hours straight at the keyboard, like you're not doing that because you hate what you're doing, right? So if you can find whatever that thing is, whether it's like you know building a, a you know a game or you know. I don't know, SaaS app or, or, or whatever, using whatever sort of tools and programming languages are disposable. That's great. I, I, I think even though I had that classic training, I, I, the first couple of years of university, I did, you know, contemplate like leaving because I, it took me a while to sort of appreciate some of the fundamental type of stuff that they were teaching me. Cause I, I had already done some coding and uh, outside, you know, in high school and stuff like that. And I felt like, you know, what, why am I learning how to, you know, program sort of this like command line algorithm. It's not very, you know, interesting or something like that. When I was used to like building stuff on the web or even building like GUIs and stuff that people could interact with, like that just felt like closer to being something that like a product that someone would use. So I felt kind of like limited in some ways. And I'm glad that I stuck with it and, and eventually had a lot of appreciation for it and actually went like really, really deep into like the theory side at one point in my, my life. But I think from my own experience, and I kind of commented this in, in the interview too, is that I think great people can kind of come from all kinds of different paths. And there's also a lot of value from like a like diversity standpoint of having people who aren't just all like MIT grads, you know, like they, 
because they're going to have a certain, you know, uh, uh, you know, frame of reference and worldview with how they approach problems and so forth. Like the fact that, for example, that you had a, you know, liberal arts degree and, you know, worked as a lawyer and with a law school, like you might recognize or make connections on a problem that I would never ever be able to make because I don't have that sort of background. So I think there's a tremendous amount of value of having sort of this, like when you're building like a team or a company, being open to having these like diverse backgrounds. And I think great people can come, like you have lots of examples of people who grew up and without even electricity that became, you know, fantastic people in technology and stuff. So there's not one path, I think, for, for everybody. Yep. Yep. And I, I think that route you took where you like, you were sort of already hooked and you'd understand the power and ease of like building stuff. And then it's like, now you go deeper. I think that'd be a nice route for colleges to take where maybe that first or second class would be more just like web dev type stuff and getting people interested in like understanding what's possible. And then people could fork off and go into compilers and operating systems and databases if they want to, or stay more in that web dev track. Um, I know like UNL, University of Nebraska Lincoln, which is, you know, that's where I went. They, they had like a traditional computer science program, but recently they've added like a software engineering degree, which is more web dev. It's like you're learning how to use Git and GitHub and things like that. And, and like things that like you're ready to go out into the world and be productive. And it's not like you just have a ton of, of theory stuff, but not a lot of like practical experience. It's like, hey, you're, you're ready to like be practical. And I know some of the people at Huddle, which is like a startup here, helped help get that off the ground because they're just saying, hey, we'd love to have people that you know, know some of those computer science basics, but also just like are ready to hit the ground running with with web dev and being a part of a, a software development team right away. I mean, one of the reasons people love hiring University of Waterloo graduates is because they have kind of, they have a very mathy, math heavy program, but they also everybody's required to go through co op program. So by the time they graduate, they have both like really, really sort of hardcore fundamental training, uh, but they've also spent like two years of actual like job experience. So they come out, they're like ready to rock when they come out. So that's why like so many Waterloo grads end up in the Bay Area working for Google and the other, you know, big tech companies. Yeah, yeah, that's a great mix of it. Yeah, cool. Let's go to the next clip. Uh, this was a great, I love this interview too. This is Yoran Dirk Grief. He's the founder of Tiger Beetle, Tiger Beetle, which is a, it's a new database. And I would say it's specifically aimed at like financial transactions and just safety and speed and concurrency around that sort of stuff, which is interesting. I love like how they're developing it and a lot of the stuff they're doing there. This clip is actually about licensing because we've seen a lot of sort of the licensing wars, especially with open source and people moving to like more of a closed source or business license type thing with a lot of different databases. So just getting his sense on that, like, how do you think about the traditional Apache 2 versus like, the, you know, the BSL or things like that. So uh, let's run the clip. So, you know, Tiger Beetle is Apache 2. We've seen a lot of um, databases or tools lately switch to BSL, uh, the business source license or, or things like that. I guess, how do you think about open source and, and, and the BSL or what do you think about that? Yeah, thanks. So yeah. It, again, like it's all about building trust you know, yeah. build trust. So I, I studied accounting and my professors, I'm really thankful because the one thing they would drill into us, they would ask the question, what do auditors, you know, the big four, what do they sell? And the answer was trust. And I think yeah. in software, like so much comes down to trust. At the end of the day, it's about trust. So you can, I think this is what people miss is the business side. As I think as engineers, we retreat and we say, well, we don't know much about business. So we're going to choose the license that has business in the title because obviously a monopoly is the way to build a great business. But I think you can build amazing businesses that are, they don't have to be monopolies. It's not zero sum. 
if you understand that business at the end of the day is about trust, how do you build trust? And I don't think you build trust by saying to your future customers, hey, you should you should depend on this critical dependency, but you know what? It's going to be a monopoly. It's going to be one business that can support it. I don't think you build trust like that. And I don't, I don't actually think, I think we should be more, as engineers, I would like us to be, I come from a business background, I think, the way I look about, you know, think about open source licenses is I always ask the question, what's good for business? Is it free? Is it permissive? Because if if you can't have a lot of entrepreneurs building businesses on this, it's not a great, I, I, in my book, you know, um, business license. Um, yeah. So I, that's why I love, I've always loved MIT and I've loved Apache because you can build businesses on these licenses. Um, and it's not zero sum, you know, again, it's all about trust. So, uh, you know, your customers want to trust you and they do trust you, but they also want to trust that if something happens to your corporate entity, well, there's another one, you know, um, mm-hmm. that, that is better for business. Um, if you look at, if you look at things, you know, as a system, you know, as an ecosystem, um, and if you want to build a great business, you can't think only, you know, of your little castle, you have to think of the fields beyond it and. You really want to get your cavalry into the field. You don't want to be defensive, digging moats. No one wins yeah. a war like that. You know, you actually yeah. want to have the best cavalry in the field. Just yeah. go and innovate, make a technical contribution, build trust. Th- this idea that we're going to lob four-year-old open source over the wall. I, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. happy. You know, I've got friends that, you know, that have you know thought they needed to do that. Um, and that's great. It's a different philosophy, but I don't think it's not great for business. You know, I think you get yeah. far more business if if you just open source. And we've also, I mean, we have this legacy. You know, we had people. The previous generation fought hard for open source, and our generation, I see. You know, people are saying it's. We we, we say we well, we're engineers. What do we know about business? But actually, I think I wish people would just say, you know what, let's just build trust and yeah, let's just just be good. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about, I mean, that trust is such an interesting one. And is there a way that you can sort of, uh, more permanently lock in some of that trust or things like that? Because like one thing that's difficult is we've seen companies that, that talked about open source, talked to get open source game for a while. And then all of a sudden and built up that trust, it seemed like, and then, you know, once it got to day two and, and, and things like that, now it's like, Hey, now we're BSL going forward. So like, I, I mean, yeah. it, it's probably hard to donate your database to like the Linux foundation, you know, like that wouldn't be, um, great, but like, is, are there, are there ways you can sort of like lock in that trust to where it's not just, you know, subject to the whims of, uh, of the company and whoever happens to be in leadership, but you know, in five, 10 years as well. Yeah. I think that's also good. So we like Tiger Beetle came out of payment switch, which was Apache two. So we had to be Apache two by contract. So that, that's nice, you know? Um, so we are Apache two, um, I think the other thing, it always, it, often what you find is when people bait and switch, it's new management, you know, and maybe they don't understand open source. They actually, because it's always like, how do people play chess? Are they trying to just capture, you know, material on the board, like just capture a pawn? Or are they actually trying to win the game? And that's always my question. Are they thinking second order? Because everyone is thinking business, you know, BSL, first order, oh, sleep well at night. Actually, if you look at it, like, you read Panda, rewrote Kafka, I don't know how many years in, seven years in. They didn't even want Kafka source. They just said, well, things have changed. We're going to rewrite it, you know? Um, 
So BSL wouldn't have given, not that Kafka are BSL, but it actually doesn't give you protection, the defense you think, because by the time someone is going to compete with you, things have changed, they'll rewrite. And again, you know, competition happens at the interface, not at the implementation. So you can license, and this is my feeling, but you can license the implementation. People always compete on the interface. It's going to be, you know, Kafka dropping replacement. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of Red Pandal. Um, but I, I think that story is interesting that, um, yeah, so I, I think if you want to build trust, you also don't want to lock people in because it's, it's kind of hard to sell, you know, if, if you're saying to someone, I'm going to lock you in. And, and, and there's a better way to do it. You don't, you don't need to. If, if you have trust, that's actually where the value is. So, which I think for engineers resonates with all of us because we, we all want to build trust. And, and it's just that we've, we had this you know, a little bit of first order thinking, but actually second order thinking is, is where it's at. So, yep. Yeah. You're talking about selling and I know you're coming up on like production release of Tiger Beetle. Like w what does selling look like for you? Is it support contracts? Is it a hosted Tiger Beetle? Is it something different? What will that look like? Yeah. So it's, it's trust and time, you know, and, startups don't have time. open source is too expensive it's not free for yeah. them you know they need someone yeah. to manage it for them because they don't have time to set up managed environments a lot of work into that um and at scale it's trust you know so you can give someone free open source but they they want to know you know who do i call if um so it's it's all about trust you don't need need to lock them in they, they want to pay you know pay pay you to to be there for them and have a relationship a, a real relationship so that's sort of how we you know we think about it on those two that and that was my own journey i didn't know any of this you know coming into tiger beetle i always thought gave me goosebumps you know what you could do with all these changes around testing and safety and performance but i was still figuring out the open source model but this is what i learned you know pe people just want trust and and save them time. Cool. Um, yeah, so haven't seen that clip. Um, I thought it was interesting what, what Yoram was talking about, about trust. A few interesting things he talked there. Like, I think one of the more interesting ones is how he's noting that uh, the competition is now at the interface level rather than the implementation where you've seen people move from open source to, to, to business license, but other places will say, uh, you know what, that's, a, that's fine. We don't need to take your actual source and, and run it and host it that way. We can just take the API, whether that's the Kafka API with Red Panda and Warpstream, whether that's the MongoDB API with DocumentDB and Cosmos DB, whether that's uh, you know something else where they're saying, hey, we can, we can make the same implementation. It's really that API, which is gonna be harder for you to, to lock down under a license anyway. Yeah, I think, I think like a lot of the value that companies bring to uh, something that might be like an open source product is, is, is sort of the, the managed service angle, right? Like that's, that's where like a lot of the cost is. Like I kind of wrote about this recently on LinkedIn in, in the context of privacy of like why it doesn't make sense to kind of like DIY something. And it's not necessarily about the like the original implementation cost. It's all the cost that like follows the actual technology, right? Like it's like, like you can, why does everybody use GitHub to run Git when I could, you know, Git is open source and I could just run my own like Git server and stuff like that. It's all the things that you get on top of that. The, the, you know, the user interface, the ease of use, the APIs, the, the access control, the fact that I don't need to worry about like whether the server is up or down. And if it's down, like, and I'm paying for it, I can go and yell at somebody like that. That's like the high value stuff for, for a business in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's always that temptation, like, 
rampant on that, that build versus buy thing. I remember like my first job uh, where I was like doing data warehouse type stuff and some other team wanted to use like Mixpanel or something else for their sort of, you know, client data needs and stuff like that. And I remember like feeling attacked. It's like, well, I built this. Why don't you use this thing I built? Even though it's not nearly as featureful and it's, it's like got all these other problems, like, and now you're paying this entire team to like maintain it. And like looking back on that, I'm kind of ashamed because I'm like, oh, like, why did we, <laughs> why did we do that stuff? Like, why don't we just go with the managed service that had all these, these sort of things. But um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting on that way. But yeah, I, I thought Yoran's like point here was interesting and especially like with um, that point at the beginning about with auditors, like what you're selling is, is trust on that stuff. And it's not just like the, the end result, but can they trust you um, and, and can other people trust you as, as well? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I also liked his comment about like lock-in and you know, one way to not get lock-in is open source. I think there's other ways to also you know provide uh, consumers or whoever's buying your product with not lock-in. And I think if you're actually delivering like real value to a business, you don't need to lock it, lock them in. You don't need to like, it's like, there's so many products where it's like, it's infinitely easy to sign up, but you want to cancel that thing. Like, you know, call somebody, we're only open, you know, these like 12 minutes of the day in, uh, you know, like a time zone that's like super inconvenient for you. And you're going to be on hold for 45 minutes. Like it's ridiculous. But if you have to kind of jump through those level hoops to like lock someone in, I don't feel like that's like a recipe for uh, like a successful business because it speaks to you know, their product, maybe not delivering that much value. Yep, exactly. Like, like he was saying, like, don't be in that sort of defensive posture, the defensive crowd where you're just like, you know, trying to protect that little kingdom that you have, but like, how can you expand and keep improving and, and, and grow and, and continue to give value rather than just, just locking people in. Absolutely. All right. So next up is my conversation with Mario Zagar from InfoPip. Uh, I really love this interview. Like Mario had spent over 14 years at InfoPip. He's still there, of course, but he had so much knowledge about like every single like technical decision that they made through this timeline. And, you know, that's a long time to spend scaling any, any product. And, you know, basically, you know, the guy's seen some shit, <laughs> like, the bottom line. Like, you know, it's seen so many different iterations of technology. Plus he was a super nice guy. So, in the clip, you'll hear him talking about some of the challenges they faced as they started to scale both their infrastructure and the teams that were working on the product. So beyond just uh, you know the clearly the kind of like scale issues you you have to deal with from uh, you know an infrastructure standpoint, what there's also challenges as you're you know essentially scaling teams. So at what point did like having multiple teams kind of working on different things, but on the same source code and projects start to become an issue. And what were the, the ways that you went about trying to like solve some of those issues? I imagine back in the early days, all of this was essentially a monolith that at some point you had to think about like breaking up. Yeah, exactly. And this was like, um, like, I think this is like totally normal approach. Like you just build some application and you you start adding features and uh, then, then you start at least this is for us we, we started getting more and more traffic more and more customers more and more features needed to be built into into this monolith and uh, as, as we are developing this even you know to some point it's not a problem having a lot of people working on this uh, but then at, at some point we really start stepping on each other's toes right so we will you know we will touch some common code which will break, you know, totally something on the on the other side. Hopefully, this this get uh, caught by the tests. Uh, but but in the end, we we would really like not to like if if I'm working on a part of the system which really doesn't have anything to do with the other part of the system. I don't want my changes to kind of break this other part part of the system. 
And there is also one other thing, like as, as this monolith uh, grew bigger, like there were just more and more tests. So if I had one feature, I need to wait like for all these tests that I don't really care about, which which I didn't touch to pass, right? And uh, at, at some point, basically at this point where we started to having like two or three groups of people being, you know, uh, really uh, knowledgeable in this domain, this part of this monolith, uh, we saw that maybe we should kind of start uh, pulling it out. And it, it wasn't just yeah. about that. It was also about uh, uh, how many resources, like how does this machine look like for this monolith? Like how, how much RAM or CPU do I, do I need to have? Basically, it's a sum of like everything, right? And if I have spikes in some other system, it should be able to handle that. If I have spikes in some other part of the system, basically both spikes should be able to uh, to, to kind of uh, survive on this machine. Uh, and it was really, uh, it started to be difficult to understand, you know, when these spikes will happen, what are these spikes, how to test this system, and so on. And it, it was start, starting to get difficult to think about the system. Like, uh, you know, basically I just have one small part, but, you know, actually running in a, in a more complex uh, environment, right? And... Uh, yeah, so, so basically it, we had like stages of this kind of how do we scale and how do we organize teams. At first, you know, this monolith was just kind of, okay, we, we need more throughput, just add more more monoliths. That, that was it. And uh, as second step, as, as more and more people got involved, uh, we started to pull out, pull out these uh, kind of independent parts. You know, billing, let's pull it out. Handling of incoming, SMS messages, let's handle it, you know, totally separate from, you know, outgoing SMS messages. And th this was kind of natural thing. And we didn't start immediately like, like dismantling everything. It, there were just some parts that came naturally to kind of extract and evolve on their own. And with time, we, we got more and more such parts and it got easier to, to handle, to reason about them and you know to to actually handle different different scale requirements because incoming messages at that time were like I don't know, 10 messages per second at best and outgoing was maybe you know like 1000 messages per second so I, you know two machines were enough for incoming messages but i needed to have like 10 machines for for the outgoing part so yeah, and also deployment cycle got easier because now I, you know, I'm just deploying my part. I'm not touching everything else. I'm not touching some common code. It's like my own, you know, playground where I where I own the the, the code that I write. So this was this was kind of the the progression how we went from you know single monolith application to kind of just copying the monolith and then extracting and organizing teams around. Uh, basically functionalities, you know, standalone functionality that yeah, can so, evolve. Yeah, so he, he dropped a lot of good nuggets in, in that. Like, I, I think, like, one of the things that I feel like uh, uh, I've seen, like, or has been consistent in a couple of interviews that I've had over the past, like, six months or so with some people who've, like, you know, been in it for a long time, like, scaling companies. Like, uh, you know, I talked to the CTO of, uh, of um, SofaScore a while back and the CTO of Algolia and, like, one of the consistent things that was like kind of aligned with like some, a lot of stuff that Mario talked about as well is like this like uh, like practical approach to computer science like because they're actually in the weeds like doing real stuff solving real problems so a lot of the times it's not about like the sort of 
elegant whiteboard, like perfect algorithm or the perfect way of doing something that you, you know, might be in a, a paper somewhere or something like that. They're just like, you know, how do I do this with this like low end machine uh, or, you know, for this cost structure or like, but my servers are burning down right now. Like what can we, you know, what band-aid can we put on this right now to like figure this stuff? And it really is, is interesting from like a creative process standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, fancy conference talks or, or, you know, vendorware about like how you should be ideally splitting this up in all these million microservices, but like being practical about that. I thought that was great. When you're leading up into this clip and you're talking about had being there 14 years, I was kind of jealous. I'm just like, man, that would be like, just really cool though, to be at a place 14 years and see that kind of incredible growth and just like all the changes and decisions. And like, I'm sure that's, you know, at the end of it, there's like some warts. You're like, man, I wish we hadn't done it that way and things like that. But you've also like learned to grow with it. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a reasonable outgrowth of sort of what you had, uh, the knowledge you had at that time, the choices you had and the scaling and all that sort of thing. So like, yeah, I, I, I'm just kind of jealous of his experience there and, and what he's seen and, and his approach. Yeah, I mean, you're you're going from you know, I think they were basically had like one you know server, probably with like both their database and their application running on it in a monolith, to now being like a you know a, a like one of the largest you know uh, multi-channel communication platforms in the world. Probably, sur sur I mean, it must be like trillions of transactions that are going through their systems, uh, making billions of dollars in, in revenue every year. It's like. I mean, that, that's a tremendous amount of stuff that if they go from like that one computer to like scale that up to that level and, uh, and being there along the way, like it, it's such a great learning experience. It'd be amazing. Yep. Yep. And not just the technical changes he's seen, but the organizational changes and what that looks like and, and, you know, onboarding the people to handle that. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was a, that was a, that was a really fun clip there. Yeah. I think the fun thing too, or the interesting thing was like, you know, if you, you know, earlier I, in that conversation too, I asked him if he was still having fun and, you know, he still, like, he loves it. He's like, it, you know, in it, even though it's been like 14 years, like he's, you know, lives and breathes this stuff. I'm sure he's done well with the company, with the growth that they've had. He can retire if he wanted to, but he's just, you know, yeah. like having fun. Yep. Yep. There's still interesting challenges to solve and at just at different levels, different scales. And yeah, it's cool. Okay. All right. So the next clip is our conversation with Mara Bear, who we mentioned earlier. Uh, she's the field CISO of Lacework. And this is some of her takes on the SEC, solar winds, and the consequences of finding CISOs or going after them legally when systems are compromised. I've been actually tracking also the all of the SEC uh, developments. Uh, we, well, it was like whatever it was two months ago when the SEC came out with like their refined uh, language around requiring a four day window for disclosing material cyber instance that the Wall Street Journal reached out and asked me what material means. And I said, uh, that's a good question. You know, like we're going to have to, I think the SEC like left it open to an industry standard that we'll have to construct. And then while I said that out loud, I thought, who but we, right? And so I got together a group of 20 or 30 CISOs and we put one together. So I've been, as a result of sort of being more um, attuned to that issue lately, I've also been tracking those developments. And there was even a ransomware gang who um, made, who filed a disclosure on behalf of the victim to the SEC because the victim wasn't paying them off. So like we're seeing just like ricochets of, you know, regulatory efforts, you know, like having, I think, somewhat unintended consequences or at least having, um, you know, and, and then recently they also, SEC charged um, the SolarWinds CISO individually as well as the company. And like, 
don't get me wrong. I'm sure there, it, it seems like there were some egregious uh, kind of flaws in or lack of strategy there and that employees raised it repeatedly. And, but like, also I kind of like hiring the person who continuously tells me we're not good enough. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to go do everything that Chad tells me. It just means that I like having someone who points it out because even if I don't have it, like, you know, I want to know. And so I, I just worry that that's going to create this personal liability standard sort of building off the Joe Sullivan stuff that just like, makes us as CISOs like more um, tuned into a fear-based decision system instead of a, you know, a rational risk-based one. Um, and I'm curious to see how that plays out. Also, like for what it's worth, I think any of us on the one hand, like, sure, I, I'm sure SolarWinds could have done more uh, for their security. We all like, uh, I don't know of a shop that, that is perfect. On the other hand, like a two-year protracted nation state level campaign would get into pretty much any shop I can think of, you know, um, or at least the vast majority, especially ones that have, you know, supply chain implications or hardware and software, as a lot of folks do, you know. Anyway, just some thoughts on, on other news headlines, as you mentioned. That's that's super interesting. I hadn't heard that. So that that CISA that they're going after personally, would that be uh, like a fine he would pay? Would it be potential jail time, or would it be like, hey, you can't be a, an executive at a public company for four years? Like, what what sort of punishment are they looking for there? Yeah, the SEC is civil, so they they could refer it over to DOJ or other folks, but they can't uh, put him in and and like I guess they could send him a desert debtor's prison in some sense. You know what I mean? Like there could be judgments. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're seeking other damages. They're trying to bar him from ever, you know, holding an officer's position again and other, other civil damages. Yeah. Wasn't the Uber, Uber's former head of security or CISO, uh, also, um, uh, charged or was liable for, for something there as well? Yeah, that's Joe Sullivan. He was convicted criminally actually, um, which is different. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's a, a hairy one. Candidly, he's also a friend of mine. But yeah, it was one of those where it was like, you know, there's no way that the entire board didn't know about a check that you write to for $100,000. I mean, come on. But, you know, he was the one who got personally indicted for it. Um, and yeah, it was, I think, I, I just think we're at a high watermark with personal like liability, whether it's civil or criminal, um, for CISOs. And that's going to change the tenor of what folks are willing to do that job. And also, um, you know, what it takes to kind of like, you know, manage it effectively, because we've just introduced a, a couple, at least degrees of risk if not categories of risk like and on some level these risks existed but like we hadn't seen them being uh implemented the way that we are now so yeah i think i think it's really important and i also think that it will um i at least hope that it will basically give folks the tools that they need internally to go to their board and say like this is a business imperative um, not just for me personally, um, but like, you know, there's, there's more enforcement going on and also the standards of the industry, you know, are MFA are, you know, handling 
you know, in sensitive data with encrypted standards that are up to date or whatever you can think of that are standard um, security practices. And that, uh, you know, I certainly hope that folks who, for example, are using Lacework will have that to, to fall back on to say, like, we're doing what industry standards dictate, which is to have good alerting to, you know, refine how we respond to those. And like, I don't, I can't imagine a regulator saying you have to be perfect, but it certainly means that you're going to have to get up and like, you know, jog with the rest of the class. Also, anything to add there? No, I don't think so. That stresses me out all that. All that sort of, <laughs> like that's just, seems like such a hard problem to stay up on all those evolving uh, threats. And that seems like a hard job. <laughs> I think my favorite part of that clip is your reaction at the end of this. This, this all stresses me out. <laughs> <laughs> True. I just don't think I could be a CISO. It just like would not be a good fit for me. Oh, personally. No, it's, uh, it's yeah. such a hard job. And I think like um, one of the things I think Merritt did a good job of like sort of articulating or, or framing there is like, you know, the, of course, it's, there's sort of egregious situations and stuff like that. There needs someone or a company needs to be held liable. But what are sort of the you know, negative consequences or signals that you do like are you going to be scaring people away scaring the alexes of the world away from you know wanting to to step into that position of being a CISO? it's like so much pressure yep. yep or also like the the sort of downstream effect or like the people underneath you where like you you sort of want people to call to call attention to these things but while you're still understanding we can't fix every single thing right now we have to like prioritize the biggest ones and and of course that leaves us open but then if there's like this paper trail of like hey someone raised this issue and it wasn't your p1 issue it was like a p2 issue but it happened to get exploited by you know some like she's saying you know any nation like these sophisticated nation states they can get into almost anyone if they want to and like what does that that mean for you know um just like reporting those issues up to your CISO and, and things like that, if it's going to then result in, in personal liability. So I do worry about like being too overzealous there because you don't want to be combing through emails and, and saying like, why didn't you get this when, it, when you don't realize, hey, you know, there are a hundred other issues. There are all things that were on fire and you can only do 10 of them in, in one year or something like that. So I do worry about that that balance um, that, that Mary pointed out there. Yeah. I mean, the consequences of of a mistake or an oversight or missing something are just uh, is you know heavy uh, when it comes to like security versus like if you're on the like the product side like in any part of an organization you're always balancing like you know you, there's way too many things to do than you could possibly do so you're you know trying to prioritize balance you know what are the things that you're actually going to focus on what are the p0s p1s to to do but you know if you don't build a feature usually it's not, like it might be bad uh, decision in the long run from like a business perspective or usability perspective or whatever but like it's not necessarily like you know people's information got compromised or your system got compromised or something like that so it's 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 hard yeah. Yeah. I don't remember that job, but uh, I thought it was an interesting conversation. It took me like, I felt some, some kindred spirit with Mary. Like she was a lawyer. I was a lawyer. Like I, we got, we got some of the, she was talking about the law stuff and the disclosure with the SEC. So I thought that that part was fun and, and kind of interesting and seeing how, you know, she's worked with other CISOs on, on developing that materiality standard, like what needs to be reported, like how important of a, uh, of a bar do you need to cross before you need to start uh, reporting that, um, disclosing it publicly. Yeah, I actually think her job as a field CISO sounds a lot more fun than being the actual CISO. Being a real CISO, you can like <laughs> sort of tell people what they should be doing, but you're not actually on the hook when, yeah, when these exactly. nation states come in and, and hack you. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. Last clip I think we have of the day. This is with uh, Somu and Akshat on the DynamoDB team. 
I do a lot with Dynamo. I, I love these guys. They've been super helpful over, over the years. Um, you know, both been working with AWS for over a decade now. You know, I think basically before Dynamo launched, they were there. Um, they're both recently senior principal engineers, which is a, a pretty high bar at, at AWS and pretty impressive. So this clip was just talking about uh, becoming that and and sort of some of the stuff we talked about with with Sam earlier too. Like, how do you stay on top of your field? Like, what does that look like in terms of uh, doing research and planning and design docs versus like actual hands-on implementation stuff and, and how they balance that. So let's take a look. Where do you go look for research on transaction protocols or 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 just different things that's happening? Is that academia? Is that industry papers? Or, or where are you finding that stuff? Both, right? I think uh, there's been a lot of good work in academia starting from the 60s about transactions. It is very interesting <laughs> um, because... Uh, the inspiration we took was uh, from one of the papers uh, published by Phil Bernstein. And this was in the 1970s when most of us were not even born, right? So I think this, uh, academia has a lot of the good research. And then there's there's been a lot of good research in the industry as well now. Like there's been, uh, industry has been doing a lot of research and we've been publishing recently as well. So industry has also been doing a lot of, a lot of research. So we look back at a lot of the uh, papers which are published in standard computer science conferences like um, Musenet, Sigmar, uh, OSDI, um, and then uh, learn from what what has worked in the past and what has not worked in the past and what will work for us technically, right? Like um, in case of uh, transactions, the timestamp ordering, why does it work for us? Uh, we will definitely go into the details. Um, and there's a, there's an element of that as well here as like what uh, what makes sense for us. Yeah. What does that look like at Amazon? Like, is it mostly just informal? Like, hey, did you see this new paper? Or are there like, you know, scheduled reading groups or or different things like that to to make sure you're, everyone's up on the latest stuff? What does that? We look have like? scheduled reading groups because we have people of varied interests and we want to kind of learn a lot about what's happening, what's not happening, and we may not get to do that in a on a day to day in a job basis, right? So we have our people who have focused reading groups who read papers all the time and talk about like, hey, pros and cons. What did we understand? What we did not understand? Uh, what did the paper do well? What did the paper not do well? Um, like we had, uh, and we talk a lot about uh, uh, how to use the different things. Like for example, a, a big thing within Amazon is like, how do we use formal modeling tools like TLA plus or P modeling, right? Um, and we'll have scheduled groups, which kind of go dive deep into that stuff. Um, so there are scheduled groups to, for everything like data structures, algorithms, distributed systems. And and I know like I've seen a lot on on TLA plus at Amazon. Is that something that you know both of you are doing, or is that something like hey, there's a group that's really good at that, or a few people that are really good at that, and they'll they'll come help you through it? Like how often are you actually using those those sort of methods? So there uh, there are very few people who use TLA plus, partly because it's it's yeah. more complex. Uh, yeah. But it's very yeah. helpful. Like for example, with the plus style, it's made a lot life a lot easier to go for you and me to go write something. Um, Back in the day, the TLA plus specification was harder to write, but at Pluscal, it's very easy. When they convert it to TLA plus, it's easy to write. The P modeling is something which we kind of have all developers now kind of use because it's closer to the code you would write and it is easier to kind of uh, prototype and P model uh, and check a model in P and then run with that stuff. I think that's that's something we have asked our, all developers to write. Um, TLA plus has usually been like a, niche set of developers we use this stuff for a really um, very critical set of problems like Dynamo when we started when we did Dynamo first we we had a TLA plus model for all of Dynamo operations to ensure that everything is correct and that's still the 
fundament foundation for Dynamo in some ways. And same for transactions. Yeah. We did a similar thing for transactions as well to prove the correctness of the algorithm. And and similar to that, we actually also have like a verifier, acid verifier, which runs in production to, you know, uh, since like whatever time has the transactions has been launched, uh, we still run the acid verifier on just to, you know, make sure that we have not like any gaps that we have uh, any blind spots or anything, things like that uh, to, to ensure protocol is correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more thing before we get into internals of transactions, like you're both senior principal engineers, you've been at Dynamo for tw 12 years, like obviously doing a lot of higher level stuff. I'm, I'm sure writing documents, writing these papers, giving talks, but Amazon is also known for being very like practical hands-on for their advanced people. Like how much during, how much time during the week do you still sit down and, and write code? So I think it varies, varies on like yeah. different phases of the project. Um, like overall, yeah. I would say like in terms of if, if I look at the like full year, um, a lot of time I think is spent in figuring out like what we are doing and how we are doing and whether it is like, you know, correct or not. Yeah. And then second phase is, I think, where you write like the P modeling stuff that, that someone was talking about. I think a lot of time gets spent in that. And third is, I think, POCs, where you come up with an idea, you write a POC to prove that, hey, this actually makes sense or this actually whatever we are claiming is uh, going to be uh, what we would, um, is, is what we are claiming is actually going to be achieved. So that's one. And then third, I would say the last part is, you know, reviewing and ensuring that operationally we are ready and ensuring that um, the the testing that we are doing, we have like good coverage. So I would say like writing code, testing, P-modeling, writing docs, uh, it's like equal split uh, in terms of like the yeah. time spent. And, and if, yeah. if I am working on a project, I would usually take something no other developer wants to take or non-critical because I'm not blocking them in any way or fashion because I'm doing a bunch of other things as well simultaneously. So I think, yeah. um, like Akshat said, it depends on the face of the project. If it's if it's something which is an ideation at this point in time, we would write a bunch of code to kind of prove it works, it doesn't work. Or we're doing some modeling stuff at this point in time, right? Uh, so that's how we kind of uh, ensure that uh, we are up to date and hands-on on the stuff as well. And the other part is also code reviews, which like, you know, still keep you very yeah. close uh, connected. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. because operationally, I think if you're not connected operationally, it's very hard to um, debug things when you get paged at night at 2 a.m. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I love that. And just it, again, seeing some of the stuff of like, you know, as you move up that sort of technical bar, this isn't into management as much or, or executive stuff like like Sam was doing. But as you move up um, the ranks, how does your your role sort of change and what is it end up doing? And, you know, it's a lot of design work, POC type stuff, doing the, the P modeling, which, you know, is, is a tricky thing to do, but doing less of like the, you know, just sitting down all day and, and cranking out some implementation for some of that. There's, they're still doing some of that, but again, like they're saying, being non-blocking on that. So, uh, they're not going to be holding up the project as a whole in, in, in certain ways. So trying to figure out how you can have a big impact and use your knowledge and wisdom that you've done, uh, still stay technical, but but not be blocking people, I, I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, uh, you know, the difference between being like the chef at the restaurant versus being, you know, a wine cook. Like the cooks are the ones that are actually like hands-on, you know, you know, making sure that the carrot is you know, cooked properly, but it's the chef that's sort of, you know, thinking more at the conceptual level and, 
orchestrating things and thinking about menus and sort of more of the, the, that sort of stuff and digging the problems and sort of uh, proof of concept or thinking about the future and so forth. And whether you're in an IC role or sort of like a really senior management role, it, I think a lot of your jobs are sort of transition to some of those things. One of the things I really liked too that they talked about was how, you know, they're still, they're always, even though they're like experts, you know, they've been working in DynamoDB and databases for a long time, been at AWS, they're, you know, senior principal engineers, like they're still, you know, digging into academics and having these groups and like learning. I remember my master's thesis supervisor, um, you know, one of the things that he said that always stuck with me and, you know, he said a lot of crazy things, but was that he said the problem that people with PhDs have is that they think that they know something. So they basically stop learning. And, uh, and I, I love the attitude that like, you know, you're, it's, it, that's, you're only like, it's always like you're, you're just sort of like uh, a beginner, you know, this sort of beginner mindset. And I think that's really important, especially in like, that's one of the, the great things about technology is there's always something to learn. Um, and it's moving so fast that you can't possibly know everything. And in a lot of ways, that's like an exciting place to, to be. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, like staying on top of the academia, but then also, you know, some of the stuff they're doing inside of AWS is probably um, ahead of some of the academia just because they're at a scale and, and different types of problems that are hard to like really simulate in, in, in academia correctly. So just like even staying up to date on what's happening within AWS, uh, it's kind of funny you talk about that, you know, stopping learning once you get a PhD. There's actually this one guy that I think he's like a senior principal on Dynamo, maybe even higher. He's worked with other databases in AWS, very, like very high up in Dynamo, worked on it for a long time. And he's basically going to get his PhD now at Wisconsin-Madison, which like very good computer science department, all that stuff and getting a PhD. But it's also like, man, you could probably teach a lot. You could probably teach most of that that stuff, but he's still like wanting to learn and, and find out his, his his own stuff and how, how he can advance in a different way than he was at AWS. So, um, you know, I've seen that uh, continuing to learn that way. Yeah, it's all about that, that growth path. I think it's also, you know, I like kind of hearing from people that, you know, they had those people, you know, folks um, had a very different path than me too, where they kind of like, you know, really specialized and dug deep for a long time in one particular thing where I've gone kind of like a million miles wide. And I, you know, I, I often, you know, think about, you know, what would my life look like if I had a, you know, focused and just like went really deep in something for a long time rather than kind of going all over the place. But it's like, uh, it, it, there's different value and different skill sets. Uh, I think like being wide helps with certain things and, but being really deep also, uh, you can be a world expert in you know, a particular thing that is, allows you to do some amazing things. Yeah. Especially something that's like so niche and like, especially like a database or operating system or something like you can really go deep. And then it's like, you're in a community of very small number of people that can talk at that, that level with you and, and keep learning, but you're also just doing like cool stuff. So yeah, it's interesting to see that, that specialization sort of the same with, with Mario, you know, being at a, a company for a long time and, and the changes he saw there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. that I, I think fun. if you're watching the video version of this too, you get a, a great way to see the various, you know, haircuts and lengths of hair that Alex <laughs> has had over the past I was you know, six months. That too. Uh, yep. Um, so uh, it's a good, uh, good look back and hopefully everybody out there has a good holiday and uh, we'll see everybody in the new year with more new episodes from Software Auto. Yep. Thanks, Sean. Thanks all.